Hi, this is Pastor Curtis Crawford welcoming you to our podcast. At Revive Outreach Church, we're striving to revive an awareness of Christ in our communities through Christ-centered compassion, service, and evangelism. You can learn more about us online at www.reviveoc.org or on Facebook at facebook.com slash church. We hope that you enjoy this message, and God bless. Matthew chapter 14, uh, starting with verse 22. I'm only going to read for you the first uh, few verses here, uh, but we're going to be looking all the way through verse 36 this morning. So let's look. Matthew chapter 14, beginning with verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds, after dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Jesus came toward them, walking on the sea very clearly in the morning. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Again, leave your Bibles out uh, to Matthew chapter 14 because we are going to be looking all the way through verse 36 this morning. Um, But to start off, uh, I want to look at how Jesus' interaction with the disciples and with Peter and what that means to our lives today, what we can take with us, what can we learn, because Jesus is once again giving them the ultimate object lesson. Last week we looked at how uh, when he called, was going to call Peter and James and John uh, into full-time serving him and following him, full-time ministry essentially, Uh, how he went and got in Peter's boat without permission and then he uh, essentially commandeered Peter's boat and had Peter bring him out to sea. And then once the teaching was over, you know, after Peter had had to surrender that possession uh, of his boat, his private property, uh, then Jesus uh, told him, listen, uh, go back out, even though you've been fishing all night long and everything, I want you to go back out and go cast your water, uh, your nets into the deeper water, even though it's completely opposite of what should have happened. The fishermen were supposed to fish at night um, and, and in the shallow waters and Jesus won the fish in the day and the deep waters it didn't make sense but Peter swallowed his pride and he went because Jesus asked him to and told him to and when he went they pulled in so many fish that they had to call for help and um, loaded down the fish so much so that the boats were were sinking uh, and then finally uh, when when this miracle happened Peter surrendered uh, his life his passion to Jesus, he was amazed. He was like, Jesus, I don't deserve to be in your presence. But, you know, please leave me be. Get off of my boat. That Jesus said, Peter, uh, I'm now going to make you a fisher of men. And so Peter then surrendered his passion. So he no longer went from uh, fishing for fish, but fishing for men. And this week we're going to look at this story that I'm sure you have heard of, especially as we move on beyond the verses that we read this morning, uh, and how God, uh, God, how Jesus interacted with his disciples and with Peter during this very interesting encounter. Uh, the first thing that we need to see here is that we're looking uh, at a story where Jesus has told his disciples in verse 22, he's told them to take the boat and go to the other side of the lake. Uh, So he's instructed them, 
uh, to go to the other side of the lake. Verse 22 says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So he's been teaching uh, all day long, uh, and it's time to uh, send the crowds home. Uh, and so he tells the disciples to get into the boat and go to the other side of the lake, and then Jesus goes up to pray uh, by himself. And while the disciples are out on the lake, a storm comes and begins to frighten them uh, and scare them, much like the storm in Matthew chapter 8, uh, where the storm suddenly comes on them, and they're afraid, and they're scared, and they went down to the bottom of the boat, and they woke up Jesus and told him, you know, hey, look, you're going to lay here and sleep while we die, and, and Jesus got up and called the storm, uh, here we are again, but this time, Jesus is not in them, with them in the boat, uh, when the storm uh, arises, uh, he's actually still on shore and he sent them on ahead. And here's the thing, is that sometimes God sends us somewhere knowing full well that the journey will not be easy. He sends us right through these dark valleys, these horrible storms, knowing the journey to the other side will not be easy, yet he told us to go anyways. He sent the disciples knowing full well that a storm was going to come upon the water and rage and that they would be afraid. But the thing that they forgot in the midst of this was they forgot that Jesus is the one who sent them. And if Jesus told them they had business on the other side, that they were going to make it to the other side. But for some reason in the storm, when Jesus wasn't with them in the boat, they panicked, were afraid, and they were scared that they were going to die. Sometimes you and I, when God sends us out of our comfort zones and he gives us a vision or he gives us uh, uh, goals or direction or guidance to take a, a step or to step out in faith, uh, to go into a new area of ministry or go in a different direction in our career or go and, you know, and, and step out of faith into some area and out of our comfort zone. A lot of times that step out of our comfort zone leads us to troubled waters and to uh, something that we're not comfortable with that causes fear and anxiety and worry and doubt. But the key is, is to remember who told us to step out in the first place. Because if God tells you to step out, he will ensure that you get from point A to point B. If he tells you to go to the other side of the lake, he's going to make sure that you get to the other side of the lake. And here's the thing. That when God sends storms into our lives, there's two reasons primarily for those storms. The first is the storms of correction, and that's like what Jonah faced in the book of Jonah when he ran from God. Jonah was told to, by God to go to Nineveh and to, to uh, tell them that God was going to destroy their city because of their wickedness. And Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh, and so uh, he was disobedient. He got on a boat going the opposite direction to Tarsus and refused to go. And as the boat got out and underway and into the sea, uh, the great storm uh, came upon the boat and upon the sea so that it was raging in such a way that while he wasn't asleep in the bottom of the boat, 
The men on the top of the boat were scared and afraid and thought they were going to die. And so they went and they awoke Jonah to tell him to pray to his God because uh, they needed to be saved. And so Jonah and them uh, began to throw cargo overboard and to throw, uh, lighten the ship's load. And Jonah says, look, you're going to have to throw me overboard. And I'm the reason that the storm has come. But they didn't want, the sailors did not want Jonah's blood to be on their head. And so uh, they uh, refused and they cast lots and uh, to essentially uh, cast uh, lots like rolling dice to see who uh, drew the short straw. And it was, of course, Jonah who the lot fell to. Uh, and confirming to them that it was indeed Jonah was the reason that this storm had come. And the storm had been sent by God to chastise Jonah, to correct his course, to correct his behavior, to correct his disobedience. And as soon as they took Jonah and they threw him in the water, uh, the storm ceased, the storm stopped. Why? Because God had used that storm to correct Jonah's rebelliousness and disobedience. And in this case, uh, God is using the storm upon the Sea of Galilee for the second reason, which is storms of perfection. When Jesus and God is trying to perfect us to make us more like he is, to conform us to his image, so that we will be more like him, that we'll see the world more like him, that we'll see people the way that he sees people, that we'll see uh, God the way that, you know, the, the, see him the way that we should see him, and that we will follow after him. He is working to perfect us. And so therefore, he allows the storm to come, and in the, like this case, and sometimes in the case in our lives, he actually sends us right through the middle of the storm because he has a plan that you and I need to develop when we left point A, we need to develop to a certain point before we reach point B because point B has something in store for us that is greater than point A and there has to be a preparation process. So if God has told you and instructed you and guided you to step out in faith, then you must do so and know that when you enter the storm, it's because he's got something greater for you on the other side. He's perfecting you for something on the other side. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 say, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Endurance is an overlooked trait in so many things in our life. But many times, the faith and trust that we need to endure is overlooked, but it is critical to our success as we follow after Christ. But endurance is overlooked. Uh, if you play uh, sports of any kind, uh, my boys both play football and um, Alex played uh, soccer and football, and uh, the coaches, especially those first several months, uh, it's a lot about cardio. Why? Because they're trying to build up these kids and these players' endurance 
so that they can last a full football game or a full soccer game. Uh, and so they're constantly running and doing sprints and doing, uh, you know, running uh, the, around the, you know, uh, the track and uh, trying to build up their endurance for the long game. Because if you go into a game without the ability to breathe and maintain and control your fatigue and control your heart rate and your breathing, if you're out of shape, you won't make it to the end of the game. And many Christians today, we're out of shape and we're struggling just to make it to tomorrow, let alone make it to the end of the race. We're struggling just to see the morning, let alone make it to next week because we have not built up an endurance because we do not put enough stress upon endurance. Today, um, uh, I've been chasing my granddaughter. Uh, she is almost a year old. Uh, she's absolutely adorable. Uh, she's, she's got about two months. She's 10 months old. And she is crawling everywhere and pulling up and like to go up the stairs. And, and uh, Pops was chasing her today. And she was chasing me, and we were crawling back and forth. And if you can imagine, big old me, uh, you know, crawling uh, around on the floor, chasing her around the whole basement, uh, and her chasing me. And after about mm, 15 minutes of this, uh, I was wore out. I couldn't hardly breathe. I was sweating. My heart was racing like crazy. Why? Because I didn't have the endurance to be able to keep up with her the way that I needed to be able to keep up with her. I wasn't ready. I didn't have the endurance necessary to follow her and to chase her and to keep up with the level that she was playing at. And so therefore, after a period of time, I had to pass her off to Grandma, to Mimi, because Pops couldn't keep up any longer. And it was convicting to me because it let me know that uh, I'm, uh, you know, she's just going to keep getting faster and moving more and more. And I'm going to have to get in shape and take this weight off and get my endurance built up so that I can see her as she grows out through her life and I can keep up with her. And, uh, you know, we need to look at our Christian lives. And instead of running away when uh, God is uh, exercising us when God is trying to build up our endurance through trials and tribulations, through storms, through circumstances. Instead of running away, instead of getting mad, instead of giving up, let us keep pushing forward so that our endurance continues to build so that we can finish the race that we started when we accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. We can finish the vision that he placed in our hearts and not grow weary before the job is finished that we can finish uh, the goals and the desires that he's placed inside of us and not grow tired before the job is done. God wants to build up our endurance, but we fight him so many times because we don't like the storm. When God places upon you and I, or allows us to enter into circumstances that test our strength, that test our endurance, that test our patience, that test our faith. We ask, you know, we need to hold on, keep pressing forward, and allow that situation, that storm, to grow us instead of cause us to shrink away. 
They were in this storm, the disciples were, because they obeyed Christ, who told them to get in the boat and go to the other side. And when you and I obey God, it doesn't mean it's always going to be puppies and rainbows and butterflies, you know, and lightning bugs. It's not always going to be perfect. Because God is changing us and molding us and growing us. In fact, if you look at the progression here in Matthew chapter 8, when the storm comes upon them suddenly, Jesus is already in the boat when the storm comes. And then they wake him and he comes out and he calms the water. Now here in Matthew chapter 14, uh, Jesus is not in the boat when the storm comes. And so you can see he's progressing and teaching them and training them. He was in the boat, they got scared, and he showed them that he controlled the winds and the waves, and he told them to be still. And then here, uh, he's not in the boat when the storm comes, but he's about to demonstrate to them that he also is still in control of the wind and the waves. Even when we can't see him, he's still in control of the storm. And so he's teaching them, gradually taking them from growing their faith, and that's what God does for you and for me. He'll meet our needs in the midst of that storm to ensure that we can keep pressing forward. He'll be there with us to guide us and to direct us. That's why Matthew 14, 23 through 27 says that after dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And well into the night, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from land, battered, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Jesus came toward them while walking on the sea very early in the morning. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. They said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Immediately Jesus spoke to them, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Because here's the thing, Jesus will never abandon you in the storm. He will always be there, he will always come to you, he will never leave you alone. He sent the disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, knowing that a storm was going to come while they were in the middle, knowing full well they would get afraid, but also knowing full well that he was not going to leave them in the midst of the storm all alone. He decided and made a determination that after he had been praying, he would go out to them. The boat is now far from land. They were out there, and to them it sure seemed like Jesus had deserted them, that he had sent them out there to die, that maybe he didn't realize the weather forecast, right? He didn't read the weather channel or see the weather channel and know what was coming. Uh, you know, he wasn't prepared, but just because he knew the forecast is the reason why he sent them, because he knew the forecast is the reason why he wasn't in the boat with them, because he he had a lesson to teach them. It wasn't because he didn't know, it's because he 
did know, and that's what you and I must get through our minds about God, is that not God doesn't miss things, that God doesn't make mistakes, that God doesn't overanalyze, that God doesn't underanalyze, that God doesn't, uh, he doesn't mess with, make mistakes when he uh, is controlling the world and controlling things around us and he's guiding our lives. So therefore, if it looks like to us he missed something, it doesn't mean that he missed something, it just means that he's working over somewhere else so that you and I can't see the full picture. The bigger plan, it may look to you and I in our eyes like he's missed something or made a mistake, but in God's big plan, he sees that this thing, this storm that came across, this uh, circumstances that came abruptly, this sickness, this health issue, your pain, your suffering, your rejection that suddenly came out of nowhere. He knew it was coming, but he also knew that on the other side, you would be greater than when you started. He knew he had a plan for you to be bigger and better and walking closer to him when you came through the other side. And so therefore, because he loved you and I so much, he allows us to experience temporary pain and hardship so that you and I can become who he wants us to be. He knows, and because he knew, that's why they were in the sea, in the boat, by themselves that day. We see this perfectly in the story of Lazarus. In John chapter 11, Jesus is told that Lazarus, his really good friend, the brother of Mary and Martha, is about to die. But instead of Jesus leaving and going immediately, he waits four days. So that by the time he gets there, Lazarus has already been dead for a while. And when Jesus gets to the home of Mary and Martha, and Lazarus, Martha runs out to him. And in John chapter 11, verse 20 and 21, it says, As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother wouldn't have died. See, he didn't come when they thought he should come. He didn't come when Martha called him. He didn't come when Martha thought that he should drop everything and come because in her mind, Lazarus could not die. Jesus would not allow Lazarus to die. In the big scheme of things, Lazarus was their brother and took care of them. And in the big scheme of things, Lazarus was Jesus' best friend, right? That's what they could see in their eyes and in their world. But in a greater picture, God had something that he was about to do that was bigger than them and bigger than their family, that was bigger than Mary and bigger than Martha and bigger than Lazarus because it encompassed the very plan of God and his son. You see, they thought he should come and many times you and I believe that Jesus should act or God should act in a way and in a manner and a specific time. And when he does it, we become upset, disillusioned, disenfranchised, angry, and bitter. And Martha, she says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where were you? I called for you. I sent for you. I know you got the messenger. Why didn't you come right away? She was hurt. And even though she says that I know that you have the power to raise him if you just give the word, we know that she really didn't believe that statement because when he told her to move the rock, she said, absolutely not. He's stinking by now. 
So she was hurt and she was upset and she was frustrated because Jesus did not come when she called him. But even though he may not come when you call him, he always arrives on time. Because in John chapter 11, 43 through 45, it says, After he, meaning Jesus, said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound, hand and foot, with linen strips, and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unwrap him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. You see this uh, miracle that Christ was going to perform was greater than Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It was greater than that circumstance. He was going to use this to reach people who saw that Lazarus was dead and now he was alive. And their lives would be changed. Not only that, the Bible tells us in John chapter 11 that after this occurred, Jesus became so popular and the buzz about him was now at a fevered pitch to the point that it is at this moment in time that the Pharisees said, we've played games long enough. It is absolutely imperative that we kill him. In John chapter 11, it says they plotted from that very moment that they were going to kill him. And they also wanted to kill Lazarus. Why? Because God was perfecting a plan, setting in motion something greater than just uh, the loss of a family member and the pain associated with that. He was setting in the motion of the resurrection of this, of this family member of Lazarus uh, so that not only would Mary and Martha get their brother back, not only would people see and believe upon him, but also it set in motion the Pharisees making the determination that they would indeed kill him and do whatever it took and that was required so that Christ would go to Calvary, give his life, and raise again three days later so that you and I can be saved. It was greater than Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. This plan with the, 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 the raising of the brother, it actually impacts you and me today because it is a single event that caused them to say no more playing games. The Pharisees to say, we're not goofing around anymore. We're not just going to talk about it anymore. We're not going to make shouts efforts anymore. We're going to get him. And so therefore the event was greater. So even though in the eyes of Mary and Martha he was late and the plan of God he was right on time. He was there. He was waiting he was going to be with them. And not leave them alone. His plan was bigger and greater than this storm. He proved that because he walked on the water. I love what one author said. He wrote, to show the disciples that the very thing they feared was only a walking path for him. Put this in perspective. 
I used to go on walks with my older brother Jim. And uh, when I would go walking with my dad, myself, and my little brother Charlie, we walked with my dad, we always stayed on the paths. Uh, we stayed on the paths that were made by the park rangers or very clearly visible by other uh, people who had hiked and walked. And we never really ventured off of that path. It was safe and it was secure. We knew where we were going. But when my older brother, Jim, would take Charlie and I walking in the woods, we didn't take the path. For after a while, we would go right into the woods and get off the path. And we would go into the deep of the woods to where you couldn't see civilization, you couldn't see a path. And the truth is, is that even though we had our brother Jim with us, I don't know about Charlie, but, but for me, I would get scared. I was afraid of snakes. I still am afraid of snakes. Scared to death of copperheads and rattlesnakes where we were at that was a very real possibility in Prince William Forest Park. I was scared of those things. I was afraid we would get lost and not make it home. But my brother Jim, he just knew, walked like he knew exactly where we were going. Never lost a sense of direction. Never uh, got worried. Not, never was afraid. He always stayed the course. And he calmed me and Charlie, or calmed me down for sure, because he was always so confident. And so while I was afraid of the stakes and, the, and, and afraid of getting lost because I couldn't see the path and all I could see was trees, he was confident like he had walked the path before. He was not afraid, and so we followed him. And we didn't have to be afraid because he wasn't afraid because it turned out he knew exactly where he was going. So even though the path was not visible to me, the path was visible to him, and so he knew where he was going. He walked the path that I was afraid of. And just like that, Jesus is walking on this water that they were afraid of the storm and the wind and the waves. And they were afraid they were alone and they were going to die and they were going to sink. And yet in the midst of the fear and the midst of the waves and the midst of the storm, Jesus comes strolling out right on top of the water. He's walking with the wind blowing and the rain going. He's walking right on them waves, making a path right to the boat to calm. I got to believe that. That it was just a straight path that he was just walking right over to them, making what they were afraid of, showing the disciples that what they were afraid of could not come close to the Son of God, that what scared them, Jesus had full control over, that they, what they were afraid of and felt hopeless in. Jesus, uh, they were in a boat and afraid. Jesus was barely walking on the water and showing them that even without a boat, he was not afraid of this storm. Why? Because he was gone and he controlled the winds and the waves. And here's the interesting thing, that when Jesus goes out and he's walking towards them. They did not recognize him. In fact, they exclaim and tell him, hey, it's a ghost. It's a ghost. They didn't even recognize him walking on the water. Why? Because they weren't looking for him. If they had been waiting by faith and trusting him and believing that uh, he wasn't going to let them drown and that he was had a purpose for them like he kept telling them that he had made them fishers of men and 
that he was uh, going to do something great with them and they were going to do something great for him, that they had faith. Perhaps when they looked out for their Savior, they would have recognized him. But because they were so afraid and so scared that when they saw him, they were afraid of him just like they were afraid of the waves because they weren't looking for him. They were too busy looking at the storm. And so therefore, they were not looking for him. Fear and faith cannot cohabitate the same heart because fear will always blind faith. But here is the good news. The good news is, is that faith is actually the salve that cures the blindness of fear. Faith is the salve that will cure the blindness caused by fear. Psalms 56 verse 3 says, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. When I'm afraid, I don't run. When I'm afraid, I don't cower. When I'm afraid, I don't feel sorry for myself. When I'm afraid, I don't have self-pity. When I'm afraid, I don't run. When I'm afraid, what? I will trust in you. Why? Because faith and trust drives out fear. Faith and trust drives out fear. So when you and I are in the midst of the storm, we must remember that we're God's child, that God sent us there, that he didn't send us there to drown, he didn't send us there to be destroyed, he didn't send us there, uh, he has a plan for us that's greater than when we started, and so therefore we must take heart and have faith and keep our eyes looking forward, looking to him who will deliver us. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. Take that verse, write it down. Right now in this time, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. Psalm 53 or 56, verse 3. Fear can be driven out by faith. Jesus is growing us. Matthew chapter 14, 28 through 31 says, Lord, have that you, Peter, answered him, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come and climbing out of the boat. Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, the whole purpose of the storm was to teach the disciples and to teach Peter a valuable lesson regarding the sovereign and the almighty power of Christ, regarding his faithfulness, regarding his love. It was a teachable moment in God. And here's the thing. It becomes very easy for us to criticize Peter. I've heard many a minister preach messages on this and criticize Peter for having, not having faith. But here's the key. Peter had enough faith to step out of the boat. And some of us don't even have enough faith to leave the boat, let alone take a few steps on the water. See, he didn't step out and immediately sink. The Bible says that he stepped out and he started walking. So that lets me know that when he climbed out of the boat, that man stood on top of the waves with the wind and the rain, and he was looking at his Savior. That lets me know that when he stepped out, he stepped out in faith, 
towards God. He stepped out on faith towards Jesus. But as he walked closer, he began to feel that rain. And he began to feel that wind. And he began to see those waves. And he heard the howling roar. And so he began to look at the elements and the storm. And he took his eyes off of the master of the storm. And when he took his eyes off Jesus, and he started worrying about the storm around him. Now listen, he had already stepped out of the boat. He'd already done the hard part, really, which was, hey, Jesus, it was you tell me to come. And he said, come on. He stepped out onto the water. So many times you and I start out excited, ready to serve God, gung-ho. Jesus has given us the next step, or he's given us direction. He's given us guidance. God has guided us and told us something that we need to do. And we step out of the boat gung-ho. But as we begin to walk in the purpose that he has for us, and we begin to walk in the vision that he's placed in our hearts, we begin to hear the wind, and we begin to see the rain, and see the waves, and we soon are distracted from looking at our Savior, and we start looking at the circumstance, and so we stop walking, and we start sinking. I can tell you from experience, there have been many times where I've been excited and pumped up when I felt like God had directed me to do something and I stepped out of that boat. I said, Jesus, I said, God, if it's you, I will follow after you. I will do it. And I stepped out of that boat and I was all proud of myself because I was walking on water and I took one step and two step, and I was feeling pretty good. But about the third step, I started feeling the rain, and I started feeling the wind. And my eyes got off the Savior. My eyes were removed from the Savior, the one who gave the purpose, the one who made the plan. The one who provided the gift and the talents and the resources. And I started looking at the storm and I began to sink. When Peter began to sink, he called out to Christ. And that's the thing we must remember. Don't become so angry that we cut off our nose despite our face. Don't sink with weights of bitterness and anger or self-doubt and self-destruction. Everybody sinks. Everybody gets wet. The question is, what do you do when you start to sink? When you're in that storm and you're walking by faith, but then the circumstances overwhelm you, what do you do when you start to sink? Do you allow yourself to be pulled under by the wind and the waves? Or do you call out to Jesus and say, I know I messed up, Jesus. I know I messed up. Please save me. Don't be self-destructive. Don't run from God. Don't become angry with yourself and disillusioned and feel like you failed and you're a mess up and that you'll never be good at anything. Know that Christ is just teaching you a lesson because here's the deal. Next time you step out of the boat, you'll make it a little further. 
right? You may sink again after a little bit, but see, if you don't give up and he takes you by the hand, you get out of the boat again. You go a little further. And what Jesus is doing, and he's preparing you and me to walk by faith and walk towards that purpose. That even though we are getting sidelined and making mistakes, and even though we're having momentary lapses of faith and trust, that we're still getting stronger and our faith is growing so that eventually we'll be able to get out of that boat and walk towards him, not out of pride or arrogance or out of our own self-worth, but we'll walk towards him because our eyes are focused on him. And that's when he'll do something great. He'll use us to do something great. And I love this because we can learn something about Jesus. When Peter sinks and begins to sink and he calls out to Christ, Jesus immediately takes him by the hand and lifts him up so that he no longer is sinking. And I love what Jesus says to him. He says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, I love how the translators do this. Because when Peter screams, he's screaming over the winds and the wave. It's got an exclamation point. Lord, save me! He's screaming over the wind. And he's screaming over the rain. And he's screaming over the waves. He's drowning. And he is screaming, God, Jesus, Save me. When Jesus reaches down and picks him up, I'd like to picture this. He puts his arm around his shoulder and he says, Peter, why did you doubt me? He didn't point the finger at him in front of the other disciples and say, look at this mess up. He didn't ostracize him. He didn't scream at him and berate him loud enough so that the other disciples could hear. He didn't holler and fuss and make a big production about it. No, he used it as a teachable moment just for Peter. That when he lifted Peter up, I imagine Christ put his arm around his shoulder. He said, Peter, why would you ever doubt me? Look what I've already done. The things I've already done for you and the things that you've seen me do for others. I've already called the storm once. Why did you doubt? Where is your faith? But not in a condemning, accusatory, angry, condescending manner. But a loving teacher. A loving friend who said, why didn't you trust me, man? What a teachable moment, not just that Peter walked on water and not just that Peter sank and not just that Peter was Jesus saved Peter, but that Jesus didn't get angry or frustrated or embarrassed or put him down. He just loved him. He corrected him and loved, encouraged him and loved. Because Jesus doesn't want to destroy you and me. His plan isn't to destroy us. His plan isn't to hurt us and per permanently maim us. His plan isn't to cause us emotional harm that can't be healed. His plan isn't to destroy us. His plan is to make us into his image. 
be made in his image, to perfect the work that he started in us. That's his plan for you and me. His plan is not to destroy us. It's to mold us and to shape us and to make us into a beautiful living vessel. So don't let the enemy convince you if you're in the midst of pain and hurt and suffering. As you've been obedient to Christ, as you've been obedient to God and walked and followed him, don't let the enemy convince you that Jesus has forsaken you, that he's turned his back on you. Even if you've made a mistake, even if you've lost faith or trust, you've wavered in your faith, you've wavered in your obedience because of fear or circumstances or doubt, know that Jesus isn't waiting there to chastise you and to smack you on the hand with a ruler. He's not waiting, uh, not abandoning you to drown in the waves, but he is there that when you call out and say, I'm sorry, when you call out and say, I feel lost, when you call out and say, Jesus, help me. He will take you by the hand. He'll put his arms around you. And he'll say, why do you doubt me? Man? Don't you know I love you? Don't you know I died for you? Don't you know that I rose again for you? Don't you know what I did for you? Why do you not trust me? I love you. I gave my life for you. I don't know about you. But that changes my perspective to know that God isn't some cosmic killjoy wanting to destroy me. But he is a God of love and grace and mercy who wants to grow me and change me and mold me. So don't let the enemy convince you that because of one slip up or one mistake that you're not good enough. Don't let him convince you that because you had a momentary lapse of faith or judgment that God can't use you or your life is over. No. Call upon him amongst the wind and the waves and the rain and Jesus Christ will reach out his hand and lift you up because when you thought he wasn't there, he actually has been there the whole time. Because Jesus will see you through. Verses 32 through 36 of Matthew 14 says that when they got in the boat, the wind ceased, and then those of the boat worshipped them and said, Truly you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to shore at Kadereset. And when the men of that place recognized him, they alerted the whole vicinity and brought to him all who were sick. They begged him that they might only touch the hem of his robe, and as many as touched it were healed. See, God... Jesus had a purpose for the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He had a purpose on the opposite bank of the shore, and nothing was going to keep him and the disciples from accomplishing that purpose. When he got into the boat, the disciples worshipped him, and that was the first purpose, to teach those 12 men that they could trust him no matter what. And when he told them to do something, they could do it even in the midst of a storm. He would not leave them, nor would he forsake them, but he would come walking to them that nothing could keep him from getting to them 
even a raging storm. I love, it reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. Just very quickly, uh, you know, when they, they refused to bow to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had made. And Nebuchadnezzar had them thrown into the furnace. He was so angry because he gave them a second chance to bow. And they still refused to bow. And they said that they would only worship God. That they would not bow before uh, their, his false god and worship any other god uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar became so mad uh, that he had the fire the furnace heated to the hottest it had ever been it says uh, it literally to the highest temperature that that furnace could possibly get and he took Shadrach and he took Meshach and he took Abednego who were bound he had them thrown in the fire and the fire was so hot the Bible says that even the men who cast them into the fire died on the outside of the furnace. And when they were thrown into the fire, the king expected to look in and see nothing but ash or see nothing but smoke. But when he looked in, the Bible says he looked and he said, did I not cast three men into the fire? And they said, yes, O king. He said, well, why do I see a fourth man who looks like the son of God? You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were obedient to God to the point that even in their obedience they were thrown into the fire but even the fires of that furnace could not keep God from reaching them when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den the appetites of those lions and their fierceness could not keep God from reaching him when Peter was put in prison it could not keep God from reaching him when Paul and Silas were beaten and thrown in jail the jail could not keep God from reaching them they were walking in obedience and they were walking in faith and when God has you and I walking in his purpose and his plan and bad things happen know this that no circumstance is so bad that it can keep your God from being with you he'll be that fourth man walking in the midst of your father He'll be the angel that shuts the mouth of the lion. He'll be on the hymn that you sing in the prison so that he'll shake the walls and he'll call you to change the fall. He'll send the angel like Peter and take you by the hand. Lift you up so that your shackles fall off and he can lead you right out the front gate. That's the God that we serve. And when God gives us instruction and he told, uh, to, 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 uh, tells us to walk and to step out to, uh, even if things get bad, he doesn't abandon us or forsake us. He walks with us. And listen to me, when he walks with you in the midst of a storm, in the midst of a trial, you actually get to learn something new about him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego learned that he was immune to fire. And Daniel learned that he could tame lions. And Paul and Silas learned that he could break any lock and break man out of any prison. Uh, Peter learned that he could pick any lock and open any door. These men learned through their obedience something new about God. So when you're in your trial, 
Don't be like the disciples in that river or in that sea when they looked out and said it must be a ghost because they were not looking for their Savior. They were just looking at the circumstance and the storm. But be like the one who looks out and sees and is looking for their Savior so that when he shows up, you not only see him, but you learn that he is the master of the wind and the waves and he's the master of sickness and he is the master of of, of freedom of setting us free. He's the master of every circumstance. And when he sends us, he doesn't abandon us. He goes with us. He protects us. He keeps us. So if you're in the midst of a storm today, that you're afraid, remember Psalm 53, verse 6. When I'm afraid, I trust in Don't be afraid, no matter what you're facing, the circumstances. He is with you. And nothing can keep him from you. Nothing. 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 Let us pray. Father God, I pray right now that you'll be with each one of these. Let your words and ring in their hearts that they would, if they're afraid, if they're fearful, Father, if they've stepped out in faith and they feel like that everything just started going wrong, if they're afraid and it feels like everything just seems to be falling apart, the storm is raging, if they faltered, if we faltered, if our faith has had a momentary relapse, even if we've made bad uh, decisions uh, due to a lack of faith. I ask you, God, right now that you would open our eyes, that we would see, open our hearts, that we would repent, and like Peter, say, Lord, save me, and God, that we would, you would touch us and lift us up and set our feet back up so that we can walk along beside you, that you would use it as a teachable moment right now, God, that we would grow in our relationship with you so that we can achieve the purpose and the goals that you have for our lives. Help us, God, to look at you and not at the circumstance. Help us to follow after you and not be distracted by what's around us. Go with us and guide us. Protect us in all we say and all we do. We worship you and we honor you in the precious holy name of Jesus. Amen. May God richly bless you May he keep his hand upon you and protect you in all things. God bless and have a great, wonderful week. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope that you enjoyed it and were blessed by it. Each month we have people from all over the world who listen to the messages made available. If you've been blessed by this ministry, would you consider making a donation of any amount to help support us as we continue to reach a loss for Christ? Donations can be made online at www.reviveoc.org or by check at Revive Outreach Church, 411 Chatham Heights Road, Suite 101, Fredericksburg, Virginia, 22405. Thank you for your prayers and your continued support. May God richly bless you.